Ethnography is a type of social research that involves studying the behavior of a group of people and the culture that they create. Our guest on today's episode is Peter Spear, a corporate ethnographer and brand consultant. Throughout his career, he has helped big brands like Gatorade, Coca-Cola, the Discovery Channel, and AMC to understand their buyers through qualitative interviews, which is just a fancy way of saying that he talks to those buyers and asks them really thoughtful questions and then draws some really interesting conclusions. This episode will resonate with you if you're the type of person who wants to bring more curiosity, empathy, and understanding into your business. What I hope you take away from it is that you always have something to learn, and the fastest way to learn is to engage in meaningful dialogue with your customers and sincerely listen to what they have to say to you. Hope you enjoy the show. The only thing worse than losing a big deal or missing quota is not knowing why. Here at Close, we've conducted tens of thousands of buyer interviews for hundreds of B2B companies, and we've uncovered what drives your prospects to buy, not buy, or even churn. In each episode of The Win-Loss Show, we'll show you how you can leverage feedback directly from your buyers to help you increase your win rate, perfect your sales experience, nail your marketing messaging, build the right products, and hit your quota with confidence. Peter, welcome to The Win-Loss Show. How are you doing today? I'm really good, Nate. Thanks so much for inviting me. It is my pleasure. So I stumbled across you because I follow a, a whole bunch of different newsletters. So <clears throat> Lewis's newsletter uh, is one of my favorites, and you had a guest appearance on his newsletter a couple couple weeks ago, and it was about the importance of gathering qualitative feedback. It kind of made my the hairs on the back of my neck stand, stand up. I wonder if you could just kick off by telling me a little bit about what you do in your career and why qualitative feedback is so important to your to your job, to your gig. Yeah. Nice. Well, again, I really appreciate you um, reaching out and inviting me to talk about this stuff with you. I, love, I do love my work and I do think it's important um, to anybody who's trying to understand anybody else, actually. I mean, I feel very grateful that I ended up in a job that asked me to try to understand other people as a young man. I, I think it made me a better person. So I talk about my work as brand listening, and, uh, and, and I do that to try to elevate qualitative market research to, into strategic uh, conversations. Um, my approach is to, is when I say brand listening, I'm talking about a combination of kind of ethnographic, you know, like in-context interviews with people to try to understand behavior and imaginative conversations, which is like free association and projective techniques, which are really only, uh, I only do that because I want to understand what's the emotional experience of the category or of the situation. So I, I feel like I've talked a lot about a lot of gobbledygook, but um, that's how I talk about my work in my context. Um, and the value of qualitative, so quantitative is a science of measurement. Qualitative is a science of description. And so the value really is in language and how do people describe what's happening to them and what it's like. And so it's, um, so there's a lot of room to sort of be creative and to try to explore that kind of more emotional, fuzzy, mushy part of our experience as human beings that really impacts how we make decisions um, in ways that might make us feel uncomfortable, but that are absolutely valid. You know, we are emotional creatures we are imaginative creatures, and so qualitative is an effort to try to invite those parts of ourselves into the conversation about why we choose one thing over another or why we do this and not that. 
I love that you're talking about this in the context of emotion, because I think in the business world, I think it's really easy to dismiss emotion as playing a major factor in how people make decisions. I think a, a lot of times when we're building products, when we're selling our services, we rely heavily on logic. Like, oh, this makes sense. This is an easy decision because you know, we're solving a specific problem. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the importance that emotion plays in making a, a purchasing decision for something really boring? Oh, well, so I have a story I always tell. It's very old, but it's, it's so powerful. It was early in my career. I was in San Francisco and we were doing what they call is a brand audit, you know, trying to understand what's the current what are the current perceptions and understandings that the customer and the prospect has about the brand? And the brand was Clorox bleach, right? So we can't get more generic, more sort of commodified than that. They had never had any competition before, but, but the store brands were just coming out. It was late nineties. So like, okay, we got to develop a strategy. Let's go talk to people. And we do the free association. I, I told you about, um, so we asked people, we had um, bleach users and we had them write down, whatever comes to mind in response to these questions. If Clorox were an animal, if it were a day of the week, if it were a article of clothing, there's this sort of litany of just see where the imagination goes because we know that the mind thinks associatively. If you read Dan Kahneman, he talks about it, system one and system two. There's lots of science to support all of this stuff. And so what these heavy bleach users said with remarkable consistency, I remember the first woman said, she says, well, I don't know, I wrote down snow leopard was the animal. It's like, well, tell me about the, what did you see? What are you talking about? She said, well, I saw this like mom. It was like a mom, a mom snow leopard with cubs. It was like really nurturing. But I felt like if I went anywhere near it, it would rip my face off. <laughs> and we're mm. like, well, what are you, what are you telling us about Clorox? She's like, well, I use it to protect my family, but I'm afraid of it and I keep it in the garage. And so the, that insight into the, that whole relationship with the product came from this image. And so inviting the imagery in uh, helped them understand that they, and they had already had some of these conversations, but they needed to get out of the garage and onto the countertop. So they started taking bleach out of the product and put and putting on wipes. You know, they put their brand on products that weren't uh, as dangerous. So that's the best example I can think about sort of the application of this stuff to with real world um, impact. What an interesting story. And these types of stories are the things that don't come from the quantitative side of things. Yeah. Right? I th yeah. I think that's true. I mean, what I think about what I do is that qualitative information helps us feel what it's like. And so there's a way that I could produce information for you on a deck and some data, and you might rationally or intellectually be able to digest it. But if I tell you a story about a human being, or if you're with me in somebody's house and you see this, you, that information lives in you in a different way. I think that it's about having an intuitive understanding so that whatever you're doing, so you're deciding out of a different place of knowing. Does that make any mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Uh, here at Closed, oh, we see this happen a lot where um, you have like a leader of a business who knows they want to make a certain change maybe to their marketing or they want to make a change to their product. Um, a great example is like a technology company. It's like, oh, we need this specific integration built out because I'm pretty sure there's we have buyers who are not purchasing this product because this integration isn't ready and it's an important one for their role. Uh, and it's it's one thing to go and say, hey, we need to build this. I think it's important. And it's another thing 
to bring five stories of deals you lost where the the buyer said, man, if you had this specific integration, this is what it would have done for me. And this, it would have made it so much easier for me to make a business case for this. And I could have got this decision maker on board and it would have been an easy yes. That's way more powerful than the assumption or the gut feeling from that business leader. Like yeah. the stories always trump that almost the data, like even, even coming to them with data, um, I think a story holds more power. Why do you think that is? It's how we experience the world. It's truer to yeah. our own experience. So it kind of just um, takes hold of us. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's kind of how, how we operate. Like it's, how, it's our OS. Um, and so I feel like it's kind of the, um, it's kind of how we roll. <laughs> to say yeah. So if, if a bleach company can get value out of gathering qualitative feedback, it sounds like just about any company can, maybe this is a good question. Why don't they just, why don't companies do this themselves? Why do they hire somebody like you to come in and do it for them? That's a good question. I think overall qualitative has a hard time making a case for itself in our culture and in business culture. I think broadly speaking, and particularly business culture, probably particularly technology company culture and engineering culture really kind of wants to be a machine when it grows up. Like there's some piece that really just loves technology, loves engineering, loves numbers, loves quantitative data. It's like the, it's the language, it's the water, it's the air that they breathe. And so it can be hard. Qualitative is not easy. It doesn't come to people very easily. Um, I don't think it's taught a ton in business schools. Um, so it's, it's difficult and it can be really uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, how do you process, how do you process that stuff? So it's a challenge. Um, and it can be hard to justify, or it's less easy to justify than quantitative because quantitative is so familiar. Yeah. I, I it sounds like there's two really difficult or challenging parts of prioritizing qualitative data. One, one side is the gathering of the data, and then two is making sense of it. And both require a skill set that, like, I, like you said, yes. it's not taught very often. I think a lot of people look at, at what we do, probably what you do, and they go, oh, that's easy. I'll just go ask, I'll just go ask my customers some questions, and, and then I'll get the data myself, and it'll be easier, and it'll be faster, and it'll be cheaper. And I, in my experience, when people try to do it on their own, they realize that interviewing somebody, like putting them through thought exercises, asking them open-ended questions that get them to both feel comfortable and share vulnerably enough. Like that's a skill set. And it takes quite a while to to learn that skill set and, and get people to that place where they divulge. Sometimes it takes three or four or five follow-up questions to get to the root of an issue or really understand it. Um, and so being a good interviewer and being a really curious person is a skill set that you have to learn. And then on the flip side, you know, you, maybe you finish a research project and you've got 200 pages of qualitative data. Well, how do you make sense of that? Mm. How do you go through and pick out the trends? How do you go through and, um, and identify like, these are the key themes and this is what they mean and, and parse that out and make it actionable. And because that's so challenging, I, I think there's probably a lot of companies who do it 
but I doubt there's a lot of companies who do it internally and do it really, really well. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that's also maybe not always, they're, um, they're not always um, trying to understand that sort of first principle layer of how do people feel about you? What's the relationship like? What's happening with these people? You know, it's a very outward focus. It requires an orientation that's different than um, the day-to-day, you know what I mean? Like the business that they're in, you know, it's sort of an additional um, activity that probably is hard to, hard to justify. I really, um, uh, really love what you just described. And um, I couldn't agree um, more strongly with this thing. I feel like qualitative being an interviewer, it's this invisible skill um, that when done really well, it's almost invisible. But um, I know that I'm I'm only good at it because I've been doing it for years, for decades. You know what I mean? And I talk about that space between me and a, and a participant as the awkward, and that the awkward is like the frontier, and so much can go wrong in there. You know what I mean? And early on, I just wanted to run. It's like fight or flight. You know what I mean? Things get uncomfortable. I don't know how to ask a question. They've said something strange. Maybe I got eye contact for too long, and I'm ready to run. You know, I'm ready to run for the hills. You know, but. Being able to stay and, and manage and navigate all that, I think is, I mean, I find a lot of joy in that work and in that space, and I can tell you do too. Um, but it's certainly something that um, it brings so much value because I think that the truths that come when you're in a conversation with somebody that's real, um, I always say like, you're not going to learn a ton from qualitative, right? But what you're going to learn is huge. I mean, it's huge. It can change everything. One thing can change everything. And it happens in this really, really special place between two people um, that's, that's, that has to be um, created. There's this, um, Ursula Le Guin is a, is a writer and she wrote an art. It's all very academic and heady, but she wrote this essay called Listening is Telling. And she um, described um, this idea we have about conversation that communication is about information. And she says, you know, that I'm a box and through language, I throw some in- units of information over to you and you receive and then we can take turns. And she says, anybody that's actually been in a conversation knows that that's not how it actually happens. And so she, she, she proposes, she actually drew diagrams She said that real conversation and communication is more like amoeba sex, where the two amoebas, they become one and it becomes like reciprocal and intersubjective. And me listening to you is almost the same activity as me telling you. We're kind of in this co-creative sharing of um, we're just in this process that's really special. Um, So I I think that magic um, is what makes it so powerful. And it's very hard. It's a real skill. It really is. I I think of other experiences that I've had in my life that are the parallel, a really good conversation. I used to uh, do like partner dancing. I was, I did a lot of swing dancing in college. Um, and, and I grew up as a musician and in both, in both scenarios, like when you're playing music with somebody or when you're dancing with somebody, you're both, you're acting independently, but you're also acting as like a unit and there's something really magical when there's this kind of give and take this compression intention, this, Mm. um, this like call and response that happens. And I think that, that, that same magic can be present in a really good conversation. Yes. 
Absolutely. You mentioned something a minute ago about how um, sometimes you can come across a piece of data, qualitative data, and it can change everything. Uh, and, it, and it may not happen as frequently as gathering quantitative data. Mm. But can you give me an example of a time when you found one of those qualitative data points and it completely changed everything for a company? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's two that come to mind. I feel like every project for me is this project of just be trying to be as open as possible and also just to be curious, to follow my own kind of curiosity, you know, because if I'm just to be surprised. Um, and uh, let's see, I have two stories coming to mind. So I'll tell, I'll tell you maybe two shortly. One, I was working for a tea company developing sort of, um, you know, I do like sort of foundational understanding of like, what are the motivations? What are the needs that people bring to the category here? And how do they perceive the brand? And I was in way outside of Chicago in this woman's house, a three hour interview. And she's telling me a story about her day. I'm asking her about her routines. And she's talking about, she's just talking about how she gets ready. She does her tea and her, she brings tea with her. And she says, Nobody knows I'm drinking coffee. Nobody ever. I bet everybody thinks I'm drinking coffee. And I was like, why? <laughs> why would it be so important to you that everybody thinks you're drinking coffee? And it was this moment. It was a real light bulb moment about the role of tea in American culture, about being a woman carrying tea into the workplace. You know what I mean? And it feeling sort of undercover or, you know what I mean? Like there's a, the tea is different. Uh, and so it really unlocked for me this idea of the difference of tea and gender in America and the role of coffee. And uh, it really unlocked a whole different conversation about the creative um, possibilities for that company. And then I have one other one, which I love telling, which was, a, was really recent. It was a rice company and they make, um, they make, uh, they have impeccable agricultural practices, organic and sustainable. Um, and I was talking to rice users about, about rice and, uh, I did free association and this, um, um, and this, the animal, this one guy said the animal for, um, for rice was a zebra and this, and I was like, all right, zebra, tell me about a zebra. And he's like, well, I was told that there are two types of zebra. There's a white zebra with black stripes and there's a black zebra with white stripes. And he was sincerely sort of bewildered you know what i mean and um what that led to was this real unbelievable insight into the fact that no very few of us have an idea of how rice is grown we don't have a mental concept for the rice patty or for the we don't even know we don't really have a even even i don't really have a clear idea of how rice is grown and so and so all of the messaging that they do about organic and sustainable has nowhere to land. Do you know what I mean? And so they've started, um, they bring rice patties with them wherever they go. You know what I mean? Every, every marketing event, every opportunity they have, they've got rice so that everybody that interacts with them knows, oh my God, that's what rice looks like. That's how you grow rice. And this is how they grow rice. They grow rice differently than everybody else. But we didn't have, nobody has a mental concept. Interesting. So the, this, this touches on something that I was really curious about, actually, uh, because I think when you work in a business, when you live in a, a certain industry or a certain world, you have a pretty good idea or pretty strong assumptions about how you're perceived by your customers. And you believe that you're putting out this message, you're putting out this idea, this brand that's being perceived a certain way. 
And then it sounds like when you talk to customers, talk to buyers, talk to uh, people who might be in the marketplace, the perception that they have of you doesn't always line up with your own perception. Why is that important? Like talk to me a little bit about the importance of perception and a misalignment between what, how you think you're, you're portraying yourself and then how the marketplace perceives you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a giant, it's a giant question. So, um, God, where to begin answering that? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's maybe to return to a previous question that you asked, like, why don't people do this internally? That's probably why, you know, and even if they did it internally, you know, why pay a guy like me? You pay a guy like me because I'm not of, I'm not of the culture, so of your internal culture. So why is that important? Yeah. Yeah. So I can encourage conversations that are honest about how people perceive um perceive the company um and that why would are, people be less honest with somebody who is from the company well i don't know that they would be less on, well they might be less honest we have a natural we want to please we want to make people happy to get to that question of conversation about what makes qualitative that conversation so special is that we love each other you know what i mean we love talking to each other you know what i mean we want i don't want to be mean i want to be kind if you say something i'm much more likely to support you even if I mean, I don't know. I'm more with you than with anything else. Um, and so there's a need to, to, so there's a likelihood that people will um, say nice things. That's the danger of like the friends and family approach, which I'm sure you've encountered, you know, and I've had that experience too. I've got ideas and I show them to people and I'm all the feedback's positive, but then it not, like the rubber never hits the road. And I realized, oh, that's because everybody's, they're managing my relate the relationship with me. They're not being honest about their experience with the thing. And, um, and so making sure that you're, you're um, hearing the, the true experience is, um, I think it does require some outside help, but I would also say it's very hard to hear things that you don't want to hear. You know, there's a great quote that says that you shouldn't start, it's not a should quote, but maybe you've heard this. It says that um, something about true listening only happens when you're willing to change based on what you've heard. You know what I mean? And that you, if you're listening and if you know what you're going to do anyway, and are you really listening? And so to kind of create that openness um, to change is really hard. I don't know that I answered your question. I feel like we could talk about that a lot more. How often do you see that the, that the person, the company that hires you, the perception that they have of themselves is very different than the way that they're perceived in the marketplace? Well, How often yeah. does that happen? often all the time. I mean, I feel like there's, I think it's, that's always part of the conversation and, um, and that's part of the relationship of the client is making sure that you're in dialogue about things and that, um, you're present, um, with the research. I mean, the, the, one of the beauties of remote and zoom is, you know, I can do zoom interviews with people all over the world and with the webinar, you know, I can have client with me in, a, in sort of a quote back room. And so they're in this really intimate interaction with a customer who's, you know, don't believe me, believe um, the things that this person says about their experience. So I think that's, it, it makes research really powerful that we're able to get so close now and to bring the client with us. You know, I mean, it's really amazing. What, what would you say is the advantage that a company has that is in constant dialogue with their customers versus a company that kind of just, uh, moves forward with their own momentum, assuming that they're on the right track. I feel like you just become better at your job. You're better at 
better at make, maybe you feel more confident in your decision-making if it comes from a place of intuitive understanding of who you serve. I mean, I think that's what I would say. Um, and there, I think it increases the likelihood that what you're doing will resonate in the way that you intend it to resonate. I mean, I come from the, so if you were to trace the, my sort of pedigree of my work, I come out of the brand planning discipline, which was born in the sixties in the UK and the planning, the word planning, it was a revolution in, it was like, it was, it, they showed it in Mad Men, you know, it was like a revolutionary idea that you would plan not the message, but the response, not the stimuli, but the response. And so how do you know what to do if you aren't planning the response? And how do you know how, how people will respond if you don't attempt to understand what it's like on the other side of the message or whatever it is, product or package or anything? Yeah. Yeah. What advice, what advice do you have for a business leader who's listening to this interview right now and wanting to get more serious about understanding their buyers, their customers, the marketplace, the perception that uh, the people have of their brand and their company and their products. I'll stop there. I get really wordy, but what, what advice would you give to that, yeah, that leader? I mean, two things come to mind. I mean, try, I would try to develop some sort of pattern of face-to-face -face conversation with your customer or your prospect and to be disciplined about who you talk to and how you define who you talk to and to be disciplined in the kinds of questions you ask and how you listen and to be open uh, and to be open as possible, to listen widely and... Um, and to have fun with it, if that's possible, to be playful, I think is important because it's all very, it's all so serious, you know, and, um, and, uh, it doesn't really have to be that serious. Do you know, does that, does that, do you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Like yeah. that, that you, it's, you know, of course it's serious. It's our work and it's our profession and all that stuff, but, um, um, to be playful about it, I guess. What do you think being playful about it brings to the table that you miss when you're just being taking yourself too seriously? I think it's about, I think I'm just, I just want, you just want to invite the whole person in, you know yeah. what I mean? Cause are you getting the full story if you're not acknowledging them as a human being? Um, so I have a, I have, I start my interviews with a question that I stole from this woman. She lives in Hudson and she's a, she teaches oral history and she starts all of her interviews this way. And I totally stole it from her. And um, I caveat it, really. I over-explain it. This, I'll just tell you what I... This is what I do. I say, oh, so I start all my, my interviews with the same question. I, I use this question because it's a really powerful question. But because it's a powerful question, I over-explain it. And I want to make sure you understand that you're in absolute control and you can answer this question any way that you want to. The question is, where do you come from? And that puts people in this crazy space where they're, they take ownership of their story. Um, they sort of arrive into the interview and they get to be, they get to tell you who they are and it starts in a real rooted place. So I think that I'm just trying to encourage people to, yeah, just be really, just be your full self. I, 
I think if you can start off an interview that way where you are literally inviting the person to bring their whole self in, their willingness to be transparent and honest and candid with you just goes right through the right right through the roof. Yeah. I, I was talking to one of our um, program ran managers, they're the people who can conduct manage our accounts and conduct a lot of the interviews that we do. And um, he said uh, to me that the most important thing that you can do at the beginning of an interview is build rapport and make people feel comfortable. That's right. Make people feel at home, make, make people feel like they're talking to a friend. That's right. And if you can bring down those barriers of defensiveness of like, oh, this is a quiz or this is um, something I'm being graded on. Uh, if you can bring down those walls, you'll learn things that you never would have learned. And it only takes one or two really thoughtful questions. And uh, it's amazing what that can do for digging up the information that you're looking for. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, you did it with me this morning and I feel like the beginning is this real opportunity to kind of start the interview, but also, you know, kind of poke a hole in the balloon and have some fun and lighten up and be friendly and just to kind of like, just to let it out. And, to, and like you say, to build rapport is a giant piece of the, of the work. And certainly awesome. it starts right, right at the beginning. It's the first, first impressions are giant. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a very kind compliment. Yeah, that was great. Um, I want to wrap up here because we're kind of going short on time, but I'd love to hear uh, if, I mean, this is a good chance for you to kind of maybe plug yourself or share anything that you, that's been on your mind throughout the interview um, that you haven't had an opportunity to share. Are there any, any last thoughts? And if not, where would you like people to go if they wanted to engage with you or talk to you? Yeah. I mean, I love talking about this stuff. So I encourage anybody who's found anything that I say interesting um, or wants me to hear, wants to hear me say it again. Uh, I'm more than happy to get into conversations about this and find me. You can find me on LinkedIn um, and, uh, or at spearstrategy.com. And um, yeah, again, I, I just really appreciate the invitation and that's been a really great conversation. Peter, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's really cool to see how people use um, the same practices the same uh skill sets and mindset towards understanding customers and buyers but in a completely different context than the way we do and it's been really interesting and validating learning from you who's been doing this for your entire career you know you have this lifetime of experience and um and I, i'm excited to go back and share this conversation with the team here at closed because i think we can learn a lot from from what you're doing. And um, my hope is that people who are listening that are not here at close, like people externally hear this and they realize that like one of the most valuable things that you can do is be in constant conversation meaningfully, but listening, the listening mm. side is the most important side and listen with a willingness to change. Mm. And if you do that and you do it systemically and you do it with the intent of wanting to be better, you're going to find these golden nuggets, these moments where you realize that you're not being perceived the way that you thought you were being perceived or, um, or you're not delivering value the way that you thought you were delivering value, or you might be, your strengths might actually be perceived as your weaknesses and you'll discover things that you can improve and make better and make the experience better for your customers. And when you do that, you, you win more business. And I think that's uh, something that we're all concerned about right now is winning, winning, winning and keeping more of our business. So this is a really, a really great path to doing that. So thanks for sharing your knowledge and expertise, Peter. It's great talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Nate.
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to learn more about how you can win more by identifying and strengthening your weakest decision drivers, check out closed.com. That's C-L-O-Z-D.com.